Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to our Faster Masters Rowing Radio, and I am here live from Craftsbury Sculling Center in Vermont. Oh, you're on camp this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got people out on the lake. There's some faster masters here out here doing their stuff. So it's it's really cool to see people talking about faster masters. I've always been really curious as to who chooses to go on camp. Is it a technique camp or do people just do it as a, a personal goal for themselves? You know, honestly, the the right now there's 35 campers here and there, there's a really big distribution of people. There, there are like three groups have come together of like six or eight people from the same club. So we've got a number of groups who want to do something together for their club. Um, a lot of them, are, of course, they're largely technique focused. Um, but we also have a little race called the Head of the Hosmer, which is known as the most frequently run regatta in the world. Because you <laughs> do it was, every camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, we do it every every week camp. So every every oh. time there's a Thursday, it happens on a Thursday. And we had that today. So even people who are relatively novice scholars, maybe they come from a sweet background or they're just new, um, they, they do the 3,000-meter row, head race style. So one woman said today, well, I can't believe it. You know, at least I can say I, I actually raced a head race. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of different things, but I would say mostly technique focused for sure. Um, but they learn a lot of things. We, there's a lot of classroom sessions as well as sessions on the water. So, you know, it, it is quite intense, I would say. <laughs> Plus there's yeah. a lot of eating and things that go along with that. So. Definitely cool. an adult camp right at this time of year before the high school kids are out of school. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so my week, we've just come off our first regatta last weekend, including a moment when one of our athletes sadly put his back out. And so we oh, needed yeah. a last minute change of, of, of plan. And I messaged one of uh, someone who who joined us and did the learn to row just before COVID. And I sent him a hey, you know, Cinderella, can, can you come to the ball kind of oh, email. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, this and is an I, emergency. <laughs> well, I didn't kind of put pressure on, but I, he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll check, you know, with the household diary whether I'm, you know, needed. And, and he said, I take it that because you're asking, you must assume that I can do this. And I was like, <laughs> great. Yes. I wouldn't ask you if I didn't think you could do it. And it was really cool because it takes a lot to step up and decide to do your first regatta. No, yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. And actually, let me tell you a great quote. quote. This is the quote of the week that I heard. Um, you know, at Craftsbury, they, they run a what's called the GRP, the Green Racing Team Project. And the Green Racing Team Project is elite athletes who are sponsored by Craftsbury. They also, they're sort of students, let's call it that, but they run an elite elite team for um, cross-country skiing, biathlon, and sculling. So the coach who coaches sculling is Steve Welpley. And, you know, we're go as we're going out 
the, the GRP athletes, you know, they're launching before our groups get into the dock, right? So they're, they're going north as we're coming south. And I heard him, he's going up to some athletes. He said, but it's an oarlock. Let your oarlock be an oarlock. Just re- relax. It's sitting in the oarlock. You don't have to do anything. And I was just, this is like the best quote I heard all week. He's like, don't be an oarlock. Let the oarlock be the orlock. Let the orlock do its work. And I was like, I love that. That is that that just makes my day. So and you can imagine that athlete was probably had a death grip on their handles and you right, know was right. trying to do way too much. And you know, but I was just like, this is this is precious, you know, and, and we talk about this all the time. You know what? When you feather your blade. It's in the orlock. Let the orlock hold the blade. You know, the orlock's going to do it for you. You don't have to do this. But anyway, yeah. it was wonderful to have that reinforcement. So It certainly was. So just a quick thank you, heartfelt thank you to everybody who supports this podcast. Uh, our core listeners give a small donation each month, which help us to cover the overheads of running the podcast. And if today, while you're listening, you get one useful thing from what is being said, please consider joining them, fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast, and donations start at $1 for a month. Now, the podcast this week is sponsored by the Faster Masters Rowing Individual Training Programme. For the rower who wants to race and needs a clear focus for each practice using a tried and tested program, which will prepare you for your best possible regatta. So if you know you want to race well this year, whether it's 1K or 5K, join the most successful Masters program and see the difference in your rowing. Anne started on our program in January in her single And her club member colleagues were astonished when she won a club time trial just eight weeks after starting. By May, she had bagged a silver medal in the Masters E single in her state championships, which was her first medal. And she says the difference is I'm driven, I've got structure, and I follow without questioning. Plus, it works. She said it was a thrilling race. My goal was to stay in the pack, but I overtook the pack. And so thank you to Anne for telling us how you're doing and good luck for the national championships, which is coming up. And you can buy a program today at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. And if you don't like it within 30 days, we'll give you your money back. Now, today, Marlene and I have picked as our topic trials and testing. And this came to the fore because I was reviewing some of the comments that we got sent in when we did that big survey at the back end of last year called the State of Masters Rowing. And I always like to include a kind of open question at the end that says, you know, anything else you'd like to tell us? And we get wonderful stories like people who say, oh, I row a coastal boat in the north of Australia and it's full of mangrove swamps and crocodiles. But this person (laughs) wrote and said that they had taken over as the coach of a master's group, which was a a racing group. So they all knew they wanted to race. And he said, so I said, right, we're planning the regatta season. First up, everyone needs to go and do a 1K time trial 
on the erg and he said i had open revolt so marlene firstly why would that have come about you know it it's i think it's really funny to be honest with you um but there are situations where rowers or scholars are on the water all year long and they don't like to row indoors and they prefer to row on the water. And if you request or suggest a trial on the erg, they just are like, like, no way, I'm not going to do that. We don't do that. I have, I had experience a, a number of years ago where a coach from the Pocock Center in, in Seattle wrote to me just out of just as a supporter, right, wrote to me and said, we have a slot in the head of the Charles. And it's really important if we're going to spend the money to send the crew, to transport the boat, to do, you know, it's, it's quite an investment to go to the head of the Charles. We want to make sure that our boat is competitive. And so she was a relatively new coach and her first instinct was to request a, a 20 minute erg test just to measure purely for measuring the fitness level of mm. the eligible people. And they completely vault against this idea. And she's like, I don't know what to do. She, they said, we row on the water. We don't do that. And I said, well, not an easy situation, but you know how you, she obviously wanted some, really um, good measure of fitness. And I said, well, try the 1K. Just try to get 1K. That's going to show you at least a top-end fitness. It's They don't have to train for it. It's not super long. And, and try that. And, you know, it was, honestly, I don't know what the eventual outcome was it. Or I said, or race them in singles and see, yeah. you know, if they want to do it on the water and they're training, then do something in singles. But this is for an aid event, right? So, um, yeah, that's I the think, trouble, right? And I, but I do think that this happens, and you know, for a coach, it's a difficult situation because, honestly, you if you're trying to boat the best boat according to fitness levels, you need you need some way to measure this and and. I, I kind of think like if you're willing to race, why aren't you willing to do this? That's that's my philosophy. I'm like I consider that this is just a natural, important part of training to measure progress. Because if we just think we're doing better, okay, maybe you think you had great training, but if it's not being um, expressed in your performance, which is what you're gearing for in your race. Then that you know, then it's it's difficult not to have some some kind of measurement. So, you know, trials on the water play an important role, but um, you know, this revolt you have. Then I guess he's got to go to them and like, what do you decide? Do you decide like we make the decision, or it depends. I think how their program is run to some degree. You know, how do we address this when we have a revolt? You know. Yeah, I agree. I think you've got to the root of it there. How is the program run? What is the agreed purpose and plan? 
So you have to go back to the strategy. We've done podcasts about this in the past, so I'm not going to go into it. But you need to establish for each training group, why are we here and what are we doing? And what are we signing up to? So, for example, there are groups that are really happy to row with their friends, to agree a lineup on the day, to row with relatively little structure and maximum flexibility. And then there are groups who want guidance and structure and organization, and particularly those who are highly ambitious and want to race, and those who want to improve in their racing will have a different perspective. So I think I don't want to be judgmental. There's nothing good or bad. What is your group and what have you agreed? And if you haven't agreed, it's worth going back to basics and having that discussion. Right. And and I think that's such an important part of master's rowing because there's we deal with so much variety in master's rowing. And so for the coach, um, you know, may, maybe that again, it's, it's another opportunity for the rowers and the coach to, to communicate. And if the coach has one desire, but it isn't matching the desire of the mm -hmm. rowers, you know, there's going to be a disconnect. So there has to be an, an adjustment there. And, Sometimes that leads to creating new pro programs within a club. Like, okay, there's 16 people and eight people want to be really focused and want to train and they want to be super accountable to each other. And the other eight loves training. They want to get fit, but they don't, they, they just, you know, they're not that interested in the real um, result of performance. And that is perfectly fine too so you may find that you may find that you have two different groups they can still train together but I think it's just like you said it's just understanding what each group wants because it's it's when it's mixed in the boat and people get unhappy that you know the atmosphere kind of goes down the goes down the tube and there's no reason for that to happen as long as people kind of communicate with each other you know communication is like the big thing <laughs> so let's run through some of the possible ways of testing or trialing yourself and your group of rowers that can give you an objective marker so what are your main ways of doing this marlene well on the an indoor rower um if you're if you have a crew and say you're focus is 1k racing but let's suppose that your your crew doesn't primarily rows on the water but they're really not like psyched up about erg tests right the minimal test 10 second peak power okay and i often advise this like what you want to know as a coach is who's the strongest yeah. period and and a 10 second peak power test is a very short, complex little test. You do not have to prepare for this test, but it will show you a how high they can hit their watts, how quickly they can hit their watts. And there's a huge technical element to it because if they're not effective on the drive, they're not going to hit good watts. You might have a really strong athlete, but if they're if they're application is not good they're not going to to perform really high on this test so 
it's a really short test. You don't even breathe hard practically, but it, it gives a lot of information. So I would say like, go there if you can't get them to do anything else. Um, and, the, and the next one I would say is the 1K for, for masters. Um, the, the 1K, because it's really going to show you your top end fitness. And if you're training for 1K, that's that's a, a maybe yeah. a bigger priority. And you can go, if, it, if it's on a concept two, you can go to the world rankings and up your age group and your weight and you can see what percentile your score falls in. And this is really good information because if you would like to win a gold medal at a championships, but you're only in the 75th percentile, then this isn't a, this is not necessarily given good competition. This is not necessarily a realistic expectation. However, you can retest yourself from time to time and see if you improve because, because you're measuring yourself compared to your peers, which I think is really important. Your age group, lightweight, heavyweight, a huge database of scores. So, it, you know, it gives you a very good idea where you are from a fitness point of view. And, and so I use that a lot, actually, just to see, like, like where is somebody relative to their peers in a, in a very ballpark way. I also like some of your on-water trials that you can do. Um, there are some pretty straightforward ones which will help you for a crew. So one of the things that everybody knows instinctively, if you take the rate up and do more strokes per minute, the boat goes faster. So one of the on-water trials that I like to do, which is more less about selecting individuals to go into a particular seat or into a crew, but more about trialing what is the potential 1K speed is to go and do that. You need to do this on flat water or you need to do it on a consistent body of water in the same direction. And you go and do um, two or three 2K pieces. And every 500 meters, you take the rate up two points. So you start maybe rowing at 24, 500 meters, take it up to 26, 500 meters, up to 28, 500 meters, up to 30, stop. You need to have accurate times and measurements. So we won't talk about that today, but there are easy ways of doing that. And then you go and do it again. And your goal in that sort of range of ratings, so from 24 up to 30, is to go three seconds per 500 faster every time you take the rate up to. So this is a test of the skill and where your technique breaks down and you stop getting mm -hmm. the speed gains. So that's a really good test to say, okay, we know that we need to be able to do a 347 to win the women's E8s at the national championships or whatever. Or you know, to be in the final, we need to do sub three fifty five. Can we do that? And from any rate up to thirty, two points in rate is approximately equivalent to, to three seconds per five hundred. Doesn't matter what boat you're in. Mm -hmm. 
It changes a little after 30. It reduces to two seconds and then one second. And then at really high rates, it doesn't really change that much. So it's a little bit less accurate. But that gives you some really good clues as to whether or not if you can do, say, 208 at rate 21 or 22 or 24, whatever the rate is, you can then do a little calculation on paper and work out exactly whether or not it's going to lead you to the, you know, what you desire on the race course. So I think that's a really valid way mm. of testing and trialing. I like that. This is one reason I love talk, talking to Rebecca about these things because she's got all these like nifty ways from multiple sources and knowing over the years, because for me, this is a new, that's a new trial. And, and I like it because it's progressive, right? It's not this like all out trial, just go practice your race plan, right? That's, that's one type of trial also an important type of trial, but this is about like continually measuring your, your potential and seeing what you can hold and that taking that effective technique and seeing, okay, well, when does it start to break down at what rating? And this is, these are our weak points, right? This is where we need to get better or we need to progress. So, so there's a lot of components built into a progressive test like that. And also, you don't have to peak for it. You don't have right. to rest the day before. You can just do mm -hmm. it as part of your regular workout. And if you do it, mm -hmm. say, every two weeks, you begin to get quite good at it. You know, like anything, you practice it, you get better. So don't worry too much if you do it one weekend and you do two 2Ks like that. And then come back two weeks later and do it again and see if you're better. You know, mm -hmm. and that's a, you know... If you want to do trials and testing, for me, the bottom line is the only reason for doing it is as a marker of progress. And if progress is not something that matters to you, don't do it. Right. Just yeah, not need absolutely. It. And, and there are many people who have their own little protocols. Um, I remember talking to Don Spiro once, and Don Spiro was the um world champion in the single, I believe, in 1969. Well, quote me on that, but I, th I think it was after 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 68. Um, it was either 65 or 69, because it was after Ivanov won one Olympics. It was the, fo the following year. But, um, you know, he, I remember him telling me, like, that he had a certain protocol in his workout regime and I'm not saying this is the exact protocol, but let's say it's eight times 500 meters with three minutes rest, okay? I'm not saying that was it because I'd have to go look it up, but just off the top of my head. And he knew through the season, he knew when he was getting fit for racing because then he would be able to hold a certain average yeah. for those 500 meter. And so we start at the beginning and maybe you know, let's say someone does it once a week or they have their own schedule, but many very successful scholars come up with their own little protocols mm -hmm. and they can tell, you know, like I know for some head of the Charles athletes who they, their one of their measurements was like 10 times 50 strokes. And they knew when they could perform 10 times 50 strokes at such and such a split they knew that they could hit their target split for the head of Charles, for example. So 
um, you know, it's important to come up with your own trail or one of ours examples. But but you know, many people do come up. They might have a home course where, yeah, I rode bridge to bridge, and it's four miles. And I know through the season, I do it once a week, and I know when I get to a certain point. You know, or each week, like you said, you measure progress. Oh, I was a little bit faster. I was 10 seconds faster. I was 15 seconds faster. I could do it at a higher stroke rate. So they're, they're just, it's important just to see that you're getting better. You know, the goal is to get better wherever you're starting from. So remember Brad Allen Lewis's book called Lido for Time. He would row around Lido Island in Newport Beach Harbor and take his time. Simple as that. Now, I have tiny little tests. Like I did some this morning. I was in a quad this morning and we were doing some drills to get a longer stroke in the water. And we would just set ourselves a, just a mini goal, right? 10 strokes and we're focusing on this one thing. And the first one we focused on was blades off the water and the J curve, just 10 strokes. And we did that three times and we got better. You know, that's, the sort of mindset you don't need to be in a racing squad to have that mindset of wanting to measure progress so i try very hard not to judge other people by my standards what i want to do but i certainly notice in athletes who don't race that they get personal satisfaction in improving their blade work and if you can demonstrate to them to their satisfaction that they have improved because we did 10 strokes and our oars didn't touch the water. You know, people can come off the water and feel good about what they've done. And that, for me, as a coach, is a is an achievement. No, absolutely. So, but, I, but I think also people don't be afraid of trials. You know, sometimes people are afraid to, like, get on, get on an indoor rower and see the number. And, and, you know, it's just a number. It's just an expression. It's not a good or bad. It's where where you were on the day for whatever reason, physically, mentally. And it is part, if you are a competitive athlete, it is part of preparing for competition. So I do think that at some point, if you're serious about competing in your categories, you know, at some point you you have to do trials in, in one phase or another, whether it's on the erg, whether it's on the water. Um some days you have to see how fast can I go? Like, how, how far can I, how far can I push myself and work on that? Because if you want to do well in your races, you've got to, you've got to practice that for sure. One of the best articles I ever commissioned when I was at Row Perfect was from Mahi Drysdale. And the title was, Why Do Rowers Fear the Erg? And mm. oh my goodness, it's great. I'll put the link into the show notes. But, yeah, you know, I read that for sure. Rowers do fear the erg. It is a fact. And, you know, that's part of uh, learning to overcome your fear and manage the stress and harness mm -hmm. it to your advantage is what the best athletes can do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it stares you right, right. Exactly. It's, it stares you right in the face, right? So there's no running away. So. That's right. I had a friend who I rode with and she just said, I just used to tell everybody in a very loud voice how much I enjoyed her tests. And she said, it didn't matter if they believed me or not. I just kept saying it. And so I got this reputation for being the nutcase who really enjoyed her tests. Ah. <laughs>
I was never convinced she was actually telling the truth, but she said it a lot. <laughs> well, I know it's crazy. And, and actually right here at Craftsbury, I, I, I have the uh, honor of racing here with Lisa Schlenker, who still has the world record for lightweight women on the ergometer. She still wow. has it for so many years now. So like that, that's wicked tough. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, I don't even know what I, I want. I don't even want to know how fast it is. It's probably sub seven, isn't it now? It is definitely sub seven. Yeah. But it's impressive. I'll let, we'll let people go look it up. <laughs> Great. Marlene, thank you for that. Uh, we're going to take a little pause here and move to our sponsor. So the show this week is sponsored. Fitness is a journey. And we found the perfect companion for every step of the way. Imagine a seriously tough training partner that's guaranteed to keep you on your game. They'll never skip a session. They're always there to level up your motivation and you'll even organize your life and hold all your workout gear for you. Meet King Kong bags. They're the toughest gym bags in the game. You can drag them around, pack them to the max and take them on the toughest of adventures with the confidence they're not going to rip and they're not going to stretch. All King Kong bags are decked out with all the pockets and compartments you'll ever need. We're talking shoe compartments, laptop sleeves, multiple bottle pockets, wet zones for your towel, pockets for your gym accessories, meal prep storage, and even a unique weightlifting belt attachment. If you take your training seriously, you'll need a serious gym bag too. Ready to pack for greatness? Take a quiz and let the pros match you to the perfect gym bag design. And you'll also score $10 off your purchase. Just head to KNKG, so short of the King Kong, knkg.com forward slash rowing chat. If you're not convinced, buy it, pack it, take it to the gym, get chalk all over it. And if it doesn't live up to the hype of being the number one gym bag for 80,000 plus fitness freaks around the world, return it for a full refund with no questions asked. Make sure you use the link knkg.com forward slash rowing chat for our exclusive $10 discount. Now I'm delighted to welcome to the show Jessica Carlo with her monthly book of the month. Hey Jess. Hi Rebecca. I'm showing the book. It is The Last Amateurs by Mark Durand. Um, and it's about the uh, 2007 boat race between Cambridge and Oxford. And I've had it for a while. And um, this, I was inspired to read it finally after um, this year's boat race. Oh. So, and it does not disappoint, definitely. Um, I was a little intimidated at first because I didn't realize that the author is, um, he's quite, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a good read for anybody, but it, it and it's not like a, a scholarly book, but it, he is an ethnographer and he, I believe, teaches at a very esteemed university. Is it Cambridge? Maybe? He teaches at the business school, the Judge Business School in Cambridge. So I, I know Mark personally. Uh, um, and I was there on the sidelines peripherally when he was doing his research for the book. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I don't know a ton about ethnography, but he like became a part of the team practically. 
Is that accurate, do you think? Yeah, he showed up for every single practice. He used to show up for their early morning erg sessions. He would get out the mop and the detergent and mop the floor of their sweat after they'd finished their workouts. He would hang out in the, you know, in the changing rooms and listen to the talk in the showers. Not that I was there. I just like to point out because it, it was a male-only club at the time. Um, or the building was only being used by the guys at that time of day. And then he would travel in the afternoons where possible to sit in the coach boat and watch them actually row on the water as well. That is so cool. And I, I mean, I knew you would probably know a good bit about, you know, the race and just, but I had no idea how much you would know about it. So it's very cool to be talking to you about it. It's kind of like the interview within the review. But um, yeah, what I really liked about it was that it, it um, I think, tried to answer, but yet didn't answer uh, the question of, you know, the eternal questions about rowing, like, why is the boat down to this side or that side? How how does the coach pick the lineup? Um, you know, why did this boat win and that boat didn't win? Um, and so I really enjoyed it from that standpoint because it makes me feel like all rowers kind of have the same problems, even at a very high level. So um, that was my favorite part about it. Um, yeah, I think the insight into the sort of thought process in a way, it gives you confidence. Like the challenge is very similar, whether you're working with a bunch of beginners or you're working with a bunch of elite athletes going into this peculiar, unique race. They're still trying to work out the best lineup. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't make, you know, for a master's rower, it doesn't make our life better. But it's, I mean, at least we're, we're the same as them. That's what I tell my rowing friends all the time. And they think I'm crazy, I think. But it makes me really happy to feel like we're all in the same club. Certainly does. And certainly the coaching team at that time had an open door policy. And the athletes came from lots of different countries around the world. And they were allowed to come at any time to speak to the coach about anything they wanted. And I definitely remembered overhearing some of the athletes coming and sitting with the coach and saying, I think I should be sitting in this seat and, and here's why. And I think that, you know, this should change and here's why. And a reflection back from hearing the coaches talk afterwards, the different psychologies of the different training programs. So athletes who'd come out of the North American, particularly the university system, we're used to being told what to do and not questioning it. Athletes mm -hmm. who come from some of the European um, programs had more of a sense that because they were experienced, they had a point of view that was worth throwing on the table and adding to the mix. And it was interesting how over time, obviously, those blended and the Americans got more used to standing up and saying, you know, what they wanted to say, which then helped other people, I think, understand their points of view. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there seems to be have been a lot of change after the Tokyo Olympics with regard to coaching. But I mean, I guess that's pretty normal. I'm probably just paying more attention than I normally do, because I keep getting more and more obsessed with really 
<laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really, it, it's really fascinating, definitely. Do you have a little piece you're going to read to us? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that. I have a, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's a quote from um, David Halberstam, who wrote the book, I think it was called The Amateurs, right? It was called The Amateurs, that's right, yeah. Okay, so, which I read too uh, several times, but um, this book, there's a scene where one of the rowers quotes from from Halberstam's book, and the quote starts, it's a rower, yeah, I think it was one of the rowers, his name was Russ. I'm pretty sure it was a rower, not a coach, but anyway, it says, if rowing was an estimable sport filled with virtue and honor and strength, then there was something about the team camps that was the reverse of that. They became its Darwinian lowest common denominator. This camp was, if anything, worse. It was filled with anxiety and tension that turned inevitably into paranoia. And this is my favorite, the last line, so much depended on so little that was quantifiable. And that's really a lot of the struggle, I think, in rowing, <clears throat> is that it's hard to quantify why one lineup is faster than another. And it's it's awful when you're on the side of things where you don't get selected. I mean, I'm sure most viewers have been there, but um, yeah. It, and, and by the way, that book was about the... Um, a selection for the American team, the sculling team, I believe, in um, 1984 for the Olympics. So, uh, yeah, great book to quote from and another great book. One of the things that I find so fascinating about that 1984 selection is there were actually two or three separate books written by different men who are all part of that U.S. selection. So David Halberstam's The Amateurs, Brad Allen Lewis' Assault on Lake Casitas, and now I'm struggling to remember what the third one was. I can't think of the third, but I mean, just those first two, I mean, it, <laughs> that would be a fascinating thing to discuss. I mean, we would need a whole podcast just to talk about the differences between those two books. But um, yeah, I'm not, oh, now I really, I can't focus. I'm like, <laughs> I want to know what that other book is. We'll have to email. We'll come back remember. to that. Yeah. So one of the things that I think Mark Durand draws out really successfully, and it was actually the topic of a separate article that he got published in The Economist magazine, is about the blend of the physical and the mental in a crew lineup. And he talks about what he calls the amiable fool, because mm. he noticed in one of the many changing lineups that there was an athlete whose particular psychology was good at making people laugh, you know, so like in the van when they're driving to practice, you know, he was the one who could get a laugh from people. But he was extremely good at drawing them together into a unified group. But his physical scores in the testing were nowhere near as good as a more, you know, strong, proficient athlete, but whose psychology was less kind of unifying mm. and he he doesn't draw any distinct conclusions but he does talk about the difference between these two men and the effect that that had on a crew lineup 
which eventually, you know, went into the boat race. Yeah. Yeah. And that just makes me think, wow, coaches have a very difficult job in selecting that lineup. Yeah. I used to think, oh, they know exactly what they're doing. But I mean, not that they don't know what they're doing, but even coaches can, you know, maybe get it wrong, you know, and um, totally. yeah, they're human. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They Coaches can get it wrong and they do get it wrong. And because we can't anticipate what will happen on the day and because we can't rerun a race, we all know that crew selection is an inexact science yeah. and experience is a guide, but it isn't an absolute. Um, mm -hmm. And it really is quite challenging how the mix of elements, and there are a lot of different elements that go into a successful lineup, is a really key, key part. And it isn't just factual erg scores or seat racing results. So for myself as an athlete, I tried to learn from what I was reading. And one of the things that I know is, number one, I am not the strongest athlete. Very, very rarely have I been, you know, upper half in the absolute scores, particularly when you do power to weight testing. I know I'm not quite up there. Um, it was very much around my knowing my skills. But I, I know a couple of things. One is, I'm really good at feeling how the boat's running. And I'm really good at then, from that diagnosis, working out what we could do to improve. Um, and sometimes that improvement is a, you know, get your catches in early kind of thing. And sometimes it's more about a rallying cry that the whole crew can kind of get behind. So this weekend just passed we entered the women's E8s. And when we got to the regatta and saw the draw, the regatta organizers had combined the men's and women's races into a single event with a handicap start because they didn't have very many entries. And obviously it then saves them a little time on the regatta. And as luck would have it, the men were from our own club. So we had a men's E8 from our club and a women's, and obviously there were other clubs. And so, the starter said, right, on the first go, the women's crews are going to go. And then the men, I think they had to wait 20 seconds or so. And then they went. Anyway, so we're getting into the second half of the race. And my crew is going quite well. And, you know, we're doing doing good. And I can see relative to the women's crews. I'm not even at stroke. I'm just kind of sitting there in the middle of the boat, just rowing. But then I'm very conscious of this men's eight thundering down the outside lane and of course they're faster than us they're guys you know and um, you hope the handicaps are accurate you really hope that you know as you come to the line you're going to have a really tight finish and we're coming into probably the last couple of hundred meters and this is very naughty because we we know it should only be the coxswain who speaks and then from the four seat i go We've got to beat the men. <laughs> and what happened? Really nails it. And we were about a quarter of a length in front on the line. It was really exciting. It was like, I can't let them beat us. 
did you talk to your crewmates afterwards? Did it? I know they pulled harder. I could feel it. Um, you know, they just laughed at me. But, you know, equally, I would have been really happy for our guys if they had have beaten us. But I would only have been happy if I had known that our crew had done our absolute best possible effort and there was no possible ounce of energy that we hadn't, you know, thrown into the mix. So yeah. it was a bit naughty of me, but it, it made me laugh. But that's the sort of thing that you can help yourself in your own rowing. If you know the things that you're good at and the things that you're less good at, play to your advantages. There are definitely times. Have you ever done seat racing, Jess? Yes. So... It's the great unknown. If you're in a boat, you haven't got a clue who's going to be switched next. And it's only after a switch has been done that you know whether that was your seat race or not. And of course, even if it wasn't you, it could be you as the start of the next race. You know, so you don't know what's going to happen. Therefore, the theory is you just do your best. But one of the things that they often say is, right, coxswains, we're rate limiting this. You know, you're not allowed to go above 34 or 32 or whatever it is. And, and that's why mostly Cox boats are used, um, although not so much in the sculling, obviously. Secondly, mm. they often say to coxswains, you're not allowed to say anything except what the rate is. Mm. So they try and neutralize the coxswain. So it's all about the rowers. But they often forget to say that the rowers aren't allowed to speak. And so if you're in a boat and you're listening to this and you can diagnose or encourage, you know, yeah, swearing at your crewmates isn't always a great way to go. But I always used to try and use the time from after we'd done the switch and you were in your new crew and you're going back to the start. I used to use that time to really try and make the crew kind of gel together as quickly as possible right? How are we rowing? What are the focuses that we're going to be using in the race? What's the one technical call that we all want to focus on that we think will make the boat go faster? And you can't, you haven't got a lot of time to discuss it. Obviously, you don't want the other crew necessarily to know. But it can be a really good way of getting that thing that Mark Durand talks about, where he talks about I am competing against you while the selections are being worked out. But the minute you and I are in the same boat, we are together and we're united against yeah. the rest. And you have to be able to turn your mind on and off to that subtlety, you know, within a few minutes, particularly in a seat racing situation. Yeah. And it's a very hard line to walk. I mean, and, you know, I used to think it was just me who, who, you know, that was difficult for you're competing with your teammates um, on, on, you know, a lineup, but yet you have to gel to make the boat go fast. And that matters so much. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a beautiful thing. It is so unique to rowing. I can't think of any other sport where it happens quite so much because the advantages of a crew that are gelled and rowing together are you know they're many times more than the combined strength it really is the sum of the parts is much greater than the whole and everyone mm -hmm. knows that like if you've been in a crew that's been together for two or maybe three seasons you see much greater speed advances and skill advances than you did in your first year and it, you know that's a fact regardless of how old you are 
And it yeah. definitely is something you can harness, but boy, have you got to practice it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So show us the book again, Jess. The Last Amateurs. Here we go, by Mark Duron to Helen back with the Cambridge Boat Race crew. Yeah. And, and please I, go I did check out our webpage. It's called Best Rowing Books. And you'll find that on there. And they've all got links to go and buy them on Amazon. Yes, they are affiliate links. And it's one way you can help us make a little bit of money to support the podcast is by clicking on our affiliate links. Any last thoughts? No, I can't think of anything. <laughs> so before we go, I just want to show everybody the wonderful photograph that is my backdrop this week. This is from Annalisa Celli, and it is in Trieste in Italy. And you can see three coastal rowing crews with ladies all wearing pink T-shirts against the backdrop of one of the biggest ocean liners I think I've ever seen. They look incredibly small, but it's a rather lovely photograph. So Annalisa, thank you very much for um, sharing that photograph of you and your colleagues. So... This has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio for another week. Um, it's been delightful having you with us. Please share the link with your friends and colleagues. And if you found something useful, please consider supporting our podcast. This is the show dedicated to masters athletes who want fun, fitness and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription today at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. And till next time.